This week we start our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and I want to read verses 1 to 3 as we begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, who all, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We studied Galatians and finished it last year, and 1 Corinthians is similar to Galatians in being written by Paul to one of the churches he planted. This is the church of Corinth. It's called Corinthians because that's the name of the people that lived in Corinth. Now, what was the city like that these people lived in? Well, Corinth was the capital of the Roman Empire called Achaia, which is what we call Greece. So Corinth is the capital of Greece. Corinth had been in existence only 100 years at this time, but it had developed into a city that was renowned across the Roman Empire for a few things. Number one, it was so wrapped up in sexual immorality that there was a Greek uh, compound verb that was something like corinthicate. All right, that's not the Greek word, but that's basically what it was. And it meant fornicate. And, and you didn't have to say anything other than Corinth, and everybody knew what you were talking about. You know, the commercial, you know, what, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. All right. Or San Francisco or Gotham. Right. Or in, in Indiana, Bloomington. And so Corinth was known as being the center of terrible, terrible sexual immorality. And even in a decadent time, it stood out as San Francisco and as the Castro district before it was decimated, as it stood out in San Francisco. All right. And so this is Corinth. She's a city filled with licentiousness, but that's a word you don't know. But all previous generations of English-speaking Christians knew it. But because we're filled with it, we don't know the word anymore. And... Uh, so licentious means, means you go to the driver's uh, examination, motor vehicle place, and you get your license when you turn 16. And so if you're given over to licentiousness, you're given over to doing anything. Everything is permitted. Antinomianism, licentiousness, good words to learn. So this is Corinth. Corinth was also known as being the source of the greatest wealth of Greece. It was the place where all of the nice vases and the gold and the jewelry and everything from Greece, from the time of the Grecian Empire, the Greek Empire, that's where it had all fallen to. You know, Robert Piercig in Zen of the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance says that if, if, you, if you tip the United States up on end and California is out at the edge, at the bottom, Everything without roots disconnected slides to California. Perfect image of Corinth. Everything, all the wealth, all the decadence, everything of Greece had slid out to Corinth. Corinth was at, on an isthmus where it was at the center of the travel and the commerce 
of the Roman Empire. And so it was an extremely important city. But in 100 years, it had gotten to the point where it was five times the size of Athens. All right? Athens was the university. Corinth was the London. Athens was the Oxford, the Cambridge. Athens was the Cambridge, Massachusetts. Corinth was New York City. Las Vegas, San Francisco, but New York City, really. Now, why had the city only been in existence for 100 years? Well, it actually had been in existence a long time before, but 100 years before, the Romans had come in and they'd absolutely obliterated the city. They'd raised it, they'd burned it, they'd either killed or sold into slavery all of the citizens, and then they'd put up a proclamation that Corinth was not to be rebuilt. Sometime later, that was in like 148 B.C., sometime later, Julius Caesar came along and he said, let's found Corinth again, this time as a Roman colony. And it was called New Corinth. All right? And it had the wealth of Greece, in fact, across the Roman Empire, wealth, like vases and jewelry and stuff like that, was actually called Corinthian brass. Because the wealth and the beauty and everything of Corinth was, was renowned. So this is Corinth. It's a city where it was always filled with travelers. All right? It was known for its sexual immorality, unbelievably rich, five times the size of Athens, the capital of Achaia, which, uh, actually Achaia, which was the word used in the New Testament for Greece. Okay, so if you see that word, Achaia, you're seeing the word Greece. All right. Paul had been there and had planted a church there. You can read about that in Acts. Corinth stood out because Paul went there directly from Athens. You remember in Athens he stood up and said, you men of Athens, I can see you're a very religious people. You have, you know, temples, altars everywhere, including one to an unknown God. I'm here to proclaim to you that God that you don't know. He's the one that made heaven and earth. And then you remember that a stink developed in Athens. Some believed, some laughed at him because he talked about the resurrection. Then he went to Corinth. He was only in Athens just a few days. He went to Corinth. He was in all of his cities where he planted churches just a few weeks. He went to Corinth and he stayed 18 months. So Corinth had an unbelievable treasure in having the Apostle Paul there for a year and a half. Corinth was also unusual, the church there, because the majority of the people in the church there were not Jews. They were Gentiles, and specifically Greeks. So this is the church of Corinth. Now, what was the church like? Well, as always, the church was just like its city. You know? You know, like pastor, like people, like city, like people. And so this church in Corinth, despite having had the Apostle Paul for a year and a half there as their shepherd, this church was absolutely, completely corrupt. The people fought constantly. If you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, you'll see the the, the main issue was, beginning with verse 10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. 
And so right out of the gate, the Apostle Paul makes it clear where he's headed. He's going to try to bring healing and unity to them. All right? And he says that you be made complete the same mind, the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this. In other words, you guys are fighting. Okay, you want to know who? All right, here's the details. Some of you, each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul. I of Apollos. I of Cephas. And then the one I love. I'm of Christ. We all have our way of, like, whooping up on other people. You know, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Cephas is Peter. I'm a Paul. I'm a Paulus. I'm a Peter. I'm of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself, plus these other men, are using each other as a means of... of, of um, of showing that they're better than other people. Now, we don't do that, do we? No, that's, that's a throwaway line, Nick. Because that's easy. Everybody will plead guilty to that. What you'll never plead guilty. He said, I'm of Calvin. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm of Jacob Arminius. I, nah, that's cheap. The real issue is here in this church, men in this church, men who have ministered at this church, right? And so, well, I'm of the deacons. Well, I'm of the elders. Well, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm a homeschooler. I'm a Christian schooler. I'm a public schooler. Um, and, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Life Together, which every one of you should read, absolutely, absolutely read that book. It's the best book on the church there is. It's 100 pages. You can get it done in an afternoon. It's unbelievable. But, of course, the only person who wrote it down is the Asian in the front row. <laughs> Asians still know how to, like, listen to authority and do what he says. And it's, I just, like, dream of you white people learning this. <laughs> it's true. My heart belongs to you. All right. That one you don't have to pay me for. The natural superiority of Asians. Submit to authority. Am I right? Asians do that. It's a beautiful thing. Americans hate authority. All right. So what we have in that church is we have everybody whooping up on everybody else. And what they do is they use their leaders, but not just their leaders. They also use their money and their food and their wine. Because when they got together for the Lord's Supper back then, it was a real meal. They really had a lot of food and they really had a lot of alcohol. And I mean what I'm saying. It was alcohol. Because what we find out is that the rich people, when they got together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is the demonstration of the unity we have in Jesus Christ, the rich people went ahead and ate and got drunk. They had so much that they were sated, that they were drunk, that they were filled so big that they had to loosen their belts. Okay? While the poor people sat there with nothing. So they used their leaders to fight with each other. They used their wealth and their food and their alcohol to fight with each other. All right? They fought over the resurrection. Some people denied that there was a resurrection. Some people said there were. There was. When they had a man who slept with his father's wife, they were proud about it. 
They had men who said that you didn't need to be married and you didn't need to have sex in marriage, that since the body was nothing, that you could just go ahead and have sex with your physical organs, and it had nothing to do with spiritual reality. All right? And they were denying Paul his apostolic authority and respect, so they were rebellious. And, <laughs> are you ready? Fasten your safety belts. They even, nobody knows what I'm going to say, not one person in here. David Carell does, sure. I was, <laughs> go ahead, say it. He, he's not heard this sermon. Go ahead, say it. Oh, okay, he heard it, that's why. All right. He would have known anyhow. They even had women who didn't wear head coverings. Now, none of you knew I was going to say that, did you? I'm looking. Now, what does that mean? What that means is that they, they were so evolved, so progressive, so highly developed, so sophisticated, so nuanced, so educated, so cosmopolitan, so missional, so contextualized. <laughs> Come on, laugh. I think it's funny, you know, that they flipped male and female upside down, and Paul says, no church of Jesus Christ has this practice. They were doing things sexually in the order of male and female that no other Christian church of the time did. Namely, not wearing head coverings. Yikes! Yikes! All right, I'm off. I'll, I'll keep going. And this was Corinth. This was the Corinthian church. They fought over everything. What God said to do, sex outside of marriage, a man having his father's wife, it just didn't matter to them. They did it. They denied the resurrection. They denied the authority of the Apostle Paul. And what was the crowning central reality of the Greeks? Because like every group, the Greeks have an identity and they have strengths and weaknesses. You know what a Greek person does all the time is he specializes in nuance. That's what a Greek does. A Greek is able to see distinctions that nobody else knows. He's able to separate himself and to pick apart another person. He is the master critic of the human race, a Greek. If you say the word yes, he can parse it into 100,000 different meanings. In other words, he's a philosopher. That's the nature of a Greek. And so if you add in the natural contentiousness and pride and desire to whoop up on other people and put yourself in, in, in the first position that is a part of all of our sinful hearts, it's just normal to, make, to justify ourselves and to say we're better than other people. If you take that and add to it the ability of a man that can say that a, the word yes has 100,000 meetings, it's a toxic environment. Everything is a source of division. And the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to them, and from the, right out of the gate, the minute he, he, the gate comes down, you take your first jump, the horse, right? I've heard these divisions. I'm writing you so that you see that you've got to be united. 
Now, we know from 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul had already written a letter that was a, that was a flaming failure. Was the book of 1 Corinthians a success? On one sense it was, in that we know that it's likely that after the book of 1 Corinthians, they actually did discipline the man who was committing incest, but nothing else was successful. Because if you go into the book of 2 Corinthians, what you're going to find is that all the things that he was dealing with, many of them have intensified. There is much more disrespect and rebellion against Paul in the 2 Corinthians than there was in 1st. We already know 1st was because the other letter that we don't have a copy of had failed. And here's an interesting thing. We know that 100 A.D., which is approximately 50 years after 1st Corinthians. 1st Corinthians is somewhere between 50 and 60 A.D. We know that by 100 A.D., here is what Clement of Rome has to say. He's writing them a letter, again, the Corinthians, and he says this. Take up the epistle of the blessed Apostle Paul. In other words, he's saying, well, let me use the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians as an example. All right. What did he write to you? First of all, in the beginning of the gospel, of a truth, in other words, this is true, he charged you spiritually concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then you had formed parties. Ignatius of Antioch documents the condition of the church. We know that at the time they had expelled godly good elders from their office, just like Northampton expelled Jonathan Edwards from his office as pastor. And so what we see is that the church of Corinth had a very, very um, Corinthian character. Does this make sense? I've I, I told you before, let me tell you again, that when I was at UW-Madison taking Greek, we came in the second semester to a sentence that we had had to translate that nobody could get. Everybody knew the words. They knew the verb. They knew the words. But nobody could get it. It was something like everyone, Corinth, not live something. And everybody would keep woodenly putting the words together, hoping a meaning would pop out. And nobody could come up with it. And Mrs. Fowler in her, in her seamstress clothes from Bryn Mawr was standing up front teaching us. And... She was frustrated with us. Well, I was her example of an idiot who could still pass. Years later, I heard she was at a party, a Christmas party, with classics, grad students. And she told the story of me as an illustration that anybody, if they apply themselves, can learn Greek. And I know because a friend of mine was working at my church at that time and was getting his master's in classics, and he came home and told me the story. It was me, you know. Because the first day of class, she said, at the end of this class, there are 45 of you. There will be 25 at the end of the semester and 15 at the end of the second semester. And so she said, I want to start in right away weeding the sheep out from the goats. I went up to her after the class and I said, Mrs. Scholar, I want you to know, I'm a goat. I know it. And I will not leave. <laughs> I just thought we should be clear right at the beginning, you know. <laughs> so she likes me kind of the way you like a, a, mo a mongrel dog, you know. <laughs> Doesn't belong, but it's kind of a curiosity. It's nice to have him there. This day was the only day I ever was like 
good in the class because I knew what Corinth was, and nobody else did. And so all of a sudden, I said, I got it, <laughs> you know. Earth shaking, Tim got it. I said, not everyone can live in San Francisco. And she said, that's it, exactly. That's Corinth. You know, you might want to visit San Francisco, but it would be better if your wife were along. Okay? This is Corinth. And this is Bloomington. This is Bloomington. And none of your parents are real happy about you being in Bloomington, unless they're willing to subordinate your spiritual condition to you being in music school. Nobody's happy about being in Bloomington. Mike Bowles and Lisa, they hate having their church in Bloomington. Okay? And so, Corinthians is the perfect letter for us. Because everything around us is trying to corrupt us sexually. Everything around us is trying to make us proud of the nuances we have learned. We're learning 100,000 ways of saying yes that don't mean yes. We have unbelievable wealth here. Have you noticed that the housing has not gotten gone down worse time since the Great Depression? Bloomington, I had my house appraised two years ago and then just a month ago. It had lost maybe $3,000 in value. Unbelievable wealth here. And a bunch of us are ashamed of Jesus. And we're ashamed of Christians who take a stand for Jesus. And the people that do that kind of thing, they're cut off. They're hated. They're despised. I'm of Tim. I'm of Adam. And I'm of Lawrence. And I'm of David Carell. And I'm of Stephen. I had a man tell me a couple months ago, six months ago, you know, Tim, I don't want you to take this wrong, but my wife, my wife really appreciates Stephen's preaching. And I actually said to him, that makes me happy. There has to be somebody. Listen, I know a lot of you like Stephen and David and don't like me. I hear it all the time, and that's okay. And I don't take pride in not being liked. That's fine. But churches naturally take sides when they have pastors. That's okay. But we have to be united. We have to be united because we witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember what I said to you earlier. Our tendency is always to be divided from pagans and to be united with false Christians. And that's flipped upside down. What we need to do is be divided from false Christians and united with pagans. Does that make sense to you? Because pagans don't claim the name of Christ. So when they're pagan, they're doing what they do. But when you have Bill Clinton in the Oval Office, you know what? 
a member of the Southern Baptist Church. Hello! It was a beautiful opportunity for the world to come face to face with the holiness without which no man shall see God. And what did the church do? The church dealt with it politically. Well, let's get our representatives to impeach him. And did his church discipline him? Nobody knows. Do you think of it as discipline that you know? Can you imagine reading from the pulpit, Sunday morning, the elders having met, Bill Clinton having refused to come despite taking vows to submit to us, we excommunicate him. We have barred him from the Lord's table for a period of one year or until he repents. And instead, we have no pagans here. And we're known throughout the week as the people that have no tolerance for pagans. And, oh boy, we get along great with other Christians, don't we? I mean, you understand what I'm saying? Either God is holy or he's not God. And if he's holy, then there has to be a division between us and those who deny his holiness in the name of Jesus Christ. And so don't confuse, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Jesus Christ, is I'm of holiness, and I'm emergent. Because the emergent church is godless. It exists to blur the distinction between the holiness without which no man will see God, and wickedness of Corinth. And so the whole point of Corinthians for us is going to be for us to learn the nature of holiness. So that we can stand in an evil day and not be afraid to lose our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones, many of us have him as a hero, preached at Westminster Chapel in London, the middle of the 20th century. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said that The book of Corinthians is the most applicable, pertinent, cutting, discerning, helpful book that there is in Scripture for us today. And it's only become more helpful. It's not a book of doctrine. Because our problem isn't doctrine. You go to anybody who calls himself a Christian in this community and they can rattle off the Apostles' Creed or the Westminster Standards. It's a a book of practice, because John says that any man who says he doesn't sin is a liar, and then he says this is love for God, what? To obey his commandments.